I, I think that something I, I talk about some in the report that I would, I think, you know, could be worth exploring more given the, you know, the, the focus on, on racial and economic justice is really about the distribution of, of the benefits from these different uses. And so something I, I discuss is, in general, and I, I don't know if this is a categorical statement, but in New York City, uh, you know, households that own cars tend to be wealthier and tend to be whiter than the city as a whole. It creates a, an imbalance because you have this, this really valuable asset that is being allocated to a use that a lot of the city can can really take advantage of, and they, they do get real value out of. It's you know, tremendous savings for, for the people that get free parking versus having to pay for a private garage. Um, but those, those people that are getting that benefit tend to be whiter, tend to be wealthier. I think it's really important for, for public officials and, and transportation um, practitioners to, to be careful about thinking about what are the, who's benefiting from what we're doing and who's not, um, and who's actually being harmed. Because a lot of the, the cons of, of free parking, of, you know, additional, additional car trips that lead to additional traffic deaths and additional pollution and additional emissions, a lot of those costs are disproportionately borne um, by uh, you know, minority groups. That is Daniel Como. He's a recent graduate of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. As part of his educational work, he penned a most recent report on curb space in New York City. In his report, he presents many different uses of the curb, or as he calls it, a menu of curb use, and supports it with quantitative data. In this episode, you'll get to hear more about this report and the culmination of our discussion leads to exploring, is there systemic racism in the transportation system? You can consider this part one of an ongoing series on Wisco Weekly, where I will look to feature more guests and analyze indeed if there is systemic racism in the transportation system. Before we get to today's episode, Wisco Weekly is proudly supported by our media partners. First, Automotive Mastermind. Automotive Mastermind is the leading predictive analytics and marketing automation company. One of the things that I love about this company, I've had the chance to get to know this company over the last couple years now, is their emphasis on predictive analytics. It is something that now I only see the world through predictive analytics. When I play poker, I actually try to model how I think about playing poker after predictive analytics. So thank you, Automotive Mastermind, for making me win so much money in my poker games. Second, Co-Motion Miami. Co-Motion Miami Live, I should say, is happening next week, June 30th and July 1st. One reason why I think you need to attend this virtual event is this is the perfect marriage between public and private sector 
in exploring the mobility space and exploring the transportation space. Whether you are involved with an automaker, whether you are involved with a automotive retailer, whether or not you are involved in any profession dealing in the automotive, mobility, transportation space, this is the kind of conference that you need in order to round out your professional development. Listeners of the show can get all access to this virtual event. There is free access given to certain content and there is limited access given to paid attendees. Listeners of the show can get access to everything. You're welcome. Visit wiscoweeklypod.com slash commotion. Look to register for the event. Again, it's next week, June 30th and July 1st. You can use the code COMOTIONWISCO, COMOTIONWISCO, and receive complimentary access to everything that event has to offer. I will be doing some covering of the event during and after. So if you do get, if you do miss out uh, on attending this virtual event, then continue to tune into Wisco Weekly and I will fill you in. And lastly, thank you to our media partner, Thought Leadership Summits. Thought Leadership Summits is also hosting a virtual event occurring over three days, Tuesday, July 28th, Thursday, July 30th, and Tuesday, August 4th. This event will be the first time, much like a lot of virtual events, and they are ramping up on their content. I can, I'm following all the different speakers that are being invited and who are being featured to speak at this event. So this will be a great one for those wanting to understand how data is used to optimize the customer experience in the automotive space. Listeners of the show will get to receive 20% off attendance. And also I have four free tickets to give away for this virtual event. More information on the promotional giveaway to come. Be sure you stay subscribed to the show. Visit wiscoweeklypod.com slash TLS, TLS to learn more. Now let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitaita, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly. Listeners, thank you again so much for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco, and we are exploring the new business models for the mobility of people and goods. Not only do I have a great show for you today, forget the show part about it. Let just know I have a great guest on here for you today. The report is called Curb Space and Its Discontents, Evaluating and Allocating New York City's Curbs. The author, Daniel Como. His hypothesis, as stated, is the demand for the curb is dynamic and growing. The supply is finite. As stated on his website, from his words, I believe that transportation is one of the most important important and too often overlooked aspects of, of urban life. I am convinced 
that effective and thoughtful transportation policies can improve socioeconomic equality by enabling better access to the vast array of resources available in an urban context. Men, women, and children, please welcome to the show, Mr. Daniel Como. Daniel, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you, Dennis? Excellent, sir. Thank you very much for being on the show. You are coming to us from Boston, Massachusetts, although that was not your original place of birth and origin. You're originally from a town in Louisiana called Lafayette. What was, uh, what was life like being raised in Lafayette, Louisiana? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a good town. You know, it's a metro area of about quarter million. The, the, the city itself is 100, 125, It's the, the heart of Cajun country. And so that's, uh, if anyone's trying to figure out how to spell my last name and why there's an E-A-U-X in it, um, it's because it's, it's Cajun French. And so I, I grew up there. It's a hot, especially this time of year. But it's, you know, it's, I think, like a lot of cities in the U.S., it's, you know, car-oriented, you know, not that much in the way of public transit or, or pedestrian or bike infrastructure. But it was, it was a nice place to grow up, and, and I still have a lot of family down there. I'm looking forward to when the pandemic permits travel to, for me to go back. And do you have a certain hankering for Cajun food? Do you have a bit of a spiced tongue? Oh yeah, that's certainly. Uh, even though I, I, I haven't lived in Louisiana since I was since I was eighteen, I've certainly kept the uh, you know, gumbo and jambalaya Ooh, as a regular part of my diet. I love me some jambalaya. Mm-mm-mm. Have you ever had the jambalaya with alligator meat? I don't think I've had jambalaya with alligator. I've certainly had alligator at in Louisiana. It's and it's it's a specialty, but it's. You, you'll, you'll run across it in restaurants. It's like the equivalent of chicken nowadays to you guys down there. Oh, sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> it, does, it, do, it does taste like chicken. <laughs> Everything always tastes like chicken. It does. All right. Well, Daniel, we've been in touch for some time, and I became first a fan of your work uh, as you wrote, I think, the most comprehensive article, paper, on universal basic mobility, the concept that essentially takes universal basic income, but applies it specifically to mobility. So be it public transportation, be it the roads, be it congestion pricing, everything. The The manner in which you move is essentially subsidized by all the people in your country. Now we're getting to talk about another paper that you wrote, another report that you wrote, that analyzes the curb in New York City. So first, why don't we go into what was the original hypothesis you had in pursuing this this report? Yeah, so the, the idea of it isn't especially new, which is that we have a lot of curb space, even in, in very dense, very you know, crowded cities like New York City, there's a tremendous amount of curb space. And a lot of it, uh, is dedicated to free parking. Um, and so my, I guess my hypothesis was that probably too much of it is dedicated to free parking. But I wanted to find ways that I could think about actually quantifying that because there's, there's, it's one thing to say, you know, in the abstract, we should use this space for something else. But what I was trying to, to look at in the report was to think about how do we actually quantify the degree to which too much of the curb space is used for free parking and then what does that mean in terms of you know, all the, the impacts of what we're doing with it, 
but the lost benefits of what we could be doing it with it instead. So that was, I think, the the, the, the approach behind the report. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I took, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it became more pages than I expected. But um, over the course of the report, I, I tried to explore and, and quantify these things that I think are maybe not universally known, but certainly in, in urbanist circles, I think there's a general consensus that we need to look at the, the problem of, of free parking. Um, but I wanted to take that and, and quantify it more and, and explore more what would it actually look like if we were to change things. Now that we know what your intent was with this report, candidly, as you've digested this report and you've written it and you've had some time to just let it simmer and have other people consume it, what is kind of your now takeaway on the report? I think the fundamentally my, my takeaway is that, you know, after looking at the data and looking at you know the allocation of the curb to free parking versus things like loading zones or you know, pick up and drop off areas or um, you know, waste collection, that there really are better uses of the curb than free parking. But whenever you sit down and actually quantify the impacts, um, there really are better uses for, for this valuable space than just giving it away for free as as, as free uh, on-street car parking. And w- what I think is important to, to note in that is that these are recommendations and, and policies that have succeeded elsewhere. You know, of course, you think about I think in America we we often think about European cities as the you know the, the less car dependent cities and, and so there's places like Paris, France that show that you can actually really reduce the amount of free parking you provide on your curbs and continue to have a, a thriving and, and, and vibrant um, you know urban place. Um, but even here in the U.S., um, there are some some cities that I think of you know for, for doing this research that emerge really as leaders uh, in in curb space management. Um, Seattle and, and San Francisco both uh, routinely were, were in those conversations. And for having a, a sophisticated approach to thinking about how to allocate their curbs and then actually following through on, on, on using that approach. And so I guess my, my, my other main takeaway, which is more of just a historical point of observation, is that what we think of as, as today's status quo about you know, the use of the curb and, and how it's the, the curb is for, for, for free parking, um, really isn't that old. Uh, and so one of my favorite parts of, of doing this work was, was digging through old New York Times archives, uh, I guess visually digging through, but looking at how this, how this happened. And New York City didn't actually legalize free parking on the street until 1954. And so this isn't, you know, this hasn't been the case since the dawn of time or even since the dawn of the automobile era. Cities made a conscious decision in, I guess, in New York City's case in the 50s um, to allocate curb space uh, as free parking. Uh, And so they could make a conscious decision today to do something else or to shift the balance slightly to other uses. Do you know what was going on prior to 1954? If it was legalized then, what was the model before that? I guess it was a two-part model. First was there were large private lots and garages that people would park um, overnight. And specifically, curbside parking was legal during the day, but it was not legal for overnight parking. So you you could use the curb to park, you know, to visit a store or, or something like that, but you couldn't store your car on the street um, all the time. So that was the, the legal system. 
in practice, um, people did, a lot of people ignored that prohibition. And so while uh, the New York, police, New York City police did give quite a few tickets, you know, tens of thousands over the course of a year, that they were estimating that there were hundreds of thousands of cars on the on the streets on any given night. And so they were, you know, there were there was a large scale violation of this this policy. Uh, and so they there were debates in the in the in the government at the time about whether or not to legalize it uh, as a some sort of annual fee or legalize it as as generally paid parking or to legalize it as free parking. And they, and they decided to, to just make it free and to essentially accept uh, the what people had made the unofficial um, policy. That's interesting. So the during that time, the nineteen around nineteen fifty four, or just right before nineteen fifty four, the discussions were being had that there's there's all those cars that are parking at the curb, and too many people were getting tickets. As we fast forward through specifically the car culture and the masses of people moving to urban environments and with the evolution of technology now we have things like micro mobility we have uh, ride hailing services we have pickup and dropping off of people and goods so i guess there's been a lot that has happened since 1954 in which uh i man i guess the curb space really is a very very desirable piece of land. Let's go to the report here then. So you have here, and and I'm reading from the report, the possible uses of the curb are nearly infinite, but the supply of curb space simply is not. For example, on Manhattan's Upper West Side, there are roughly 54 miles of curb space to serve all the needs of the neighborhood's 134,000 residents. If every Upper West Side resident had their own piece of the curb, that would amount to a little over two feet per person. That curb space is so prime, Daniel, two feet per person in the Upper West Side, that could be very valuable to someone. Help me understand why is two feet of curb space per resident better managed by the public sector than by the residents and and also the businesses it within the Upper West Side? Yeah, so I think it's it's a it's a it's a fair question and an interesting one. Um, because Daniel, hold on, think, wouldn't you like two feet of curb space in the Upper West Side, New York, that you could do something with it? Well, uh, in the abstract, yes, but I, I think I have uh, some explanations why I think uh, the, the public sector can manage it better. Okay. Um, but certainly, that is, you know, even two feet uh, in a an annual parking spot on the Upper West Side might, might cost uh, you know, six thousand dollars or more in a garage, and so that that's a that's a valuable piece of real estate. Um, hey, I would I would partner with you. We 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 would have four feet together. Uh, and, and if we had the whole, you know, if we had uh, all our friends and neighbors, maybe at some point we'd have a whole block. Um, I, I think that, that that two feet, you know, you could maybe you could park a bicycle um, or you could put a chair, both of which are uses that I, I would support. But there are plenty of things that we use the curb for uh, that you couldn't do with just two feet. You couldn't, for example, be dropped off in an, an Uber or Lyft. You couldn't park your own car. Um, you couldn't, uh, maybe you could store a scooter, but you, you certainly couldn't have, you know, a, a, a whole bike rack um, that could accommodate, say, a visitor that wants to come to the neighborhood, because uh, that's also, we have to think about, you know, the curb, uh, these, 
if we give it to two feet per person, the, the primary uses of the cur users of the, the curb are, are going to be those neighborhood residents. But you also have people that are visiting, and those residents are going to want to visit uh, neighborhoods elsewhere, uh, and they're going to need to take advantage of the curb there. And so, I guess I, I view the curb as, you know, for the same reason that, in general, we don't, you know, allocate everyone two feet of a street or a sidewalk or a park or a library. Um, the curb, I think, is a it's a real public asset, uh, and it, if we can find ways to allocate it so that lots of different people can take advantage of it in lots of different ways, that is going to maximize the value of this really incredible asset. Uh, I, I guess I was thinking about this um, both in a sort of like the principal level of I think there's there's lots of things you can do with that that you couldn't do if it was allocated out at the micro level. But I think there's also some logistical things to think through, uh, which is, well, for one, there's a question of you know, how would you enforce a bunch of two-foot micro-uses? You could probably solve that, but it, it could be tricky. More generally, um, within this you know, 54 miles of curb space, that is not all of that mileage of curb space is created equal. The curb space on Broadway uh, is very, very in demand. And not to say that in the Upper West Side is in general quite dense and, and high demand. But what, what works well about the way that we can allocate curb space is that you can find what is the highest and best use for each individual piece. And you can do that at, at pretty small levels, maybe not two feet, but uh, in some instances, you know, there's 40 feet allocated to a bus stop and, and 40 feet allocated to a loading zone. And so if you were to think about allocating it individually, um, you'd have to figure out how do you give each individual person uh, you know, some piece of it? And what do you do when you build a new tower? And what do you do when someone moves? Um, and, and so there's, it, it can create a host of administrative and logistical problems that I think, you know, this makes it a prime case for, for public management um, and, and public stewardship. You, I can hear it in your voice, Daniel. You thought this was a ridiculous question to ask. Come on, give, give it to me. I don't think it was a ridiculous question to ask. Uh, I, I think that it is always good to interrogate, you know, why, you know, why, why are our policies set the way they are, and, and is there a way that we could do this better? And I, I think the current, the current system of curb management, I, I think, could use a lot of work. And so I do think it's it's worth being cre you know, it's worth being creative in, in how we think about approaching this issue. And that's so why, I, and, and that, and yeah. that, and that's why I asked what would, what could be perceived as a ridiculous question, because as you noted earlier, right, the question of the curb space being so much in demand and its use at right now being so much for free parking, there's just no way in hell that any city, any agency would ever try to take on the war against its own residents and people to try to enact something that says, hey, your car is out of here and trying to get rid of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of cars in order to free up space for the pickups and drop offs, the delivery of goods, things that actually if these residents knew about or or thought about as as deeply as you perhaps have, you would almost th these guys would come to the natural conclusion. Well, yeah, of course, I would either a give up my car or B, let's I'm more interested in finding a solution how we can free up this curb space in the process of having the public sector manage it. 
like the public sector would normally do, it takes a long time to get something passed. But if it's in the property of the people, you have a better chance of getting of 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 the usage uh, being, you know, being better managed, being used more for today's day and time, because certainly 20 years from now, we might not be considering um, the Ubers and the Lyfts anymore because maybe everything is an autonomous vehicle and then we need to come up with a new policy that addresses autonomous vehicles. I mean, I, I certainly think that the public sector can, can move slowly in, in some instances. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, just like public sector controls the streets, they control the sidewalks, you know, there's some uses of the curb, like say a, a bike lane or a bus lane or, you know, a car travel lane. It, you, you need the whole block. You can't do it with a patchwork. And so, well, there are some uses like, say, bike parking or, you know, a parking space or uh, a parklet where you, you could do it with, you know, sort of a patchwork approach. Um, a lot of the, the uses really can't work like that. Uh, and so I think, you know, there are, this is a case where there's, you know, the, the public sector is, is deciding through its its mechanisms and sometimes those take a while and sometimes those are quite contentious you know how to how to allocate this this valuable you know asset that, that, it, that it has i mean i i think that there's almost the need to literally redefine the curb because i think in a lot of what you're referencing is the curb by extension includes the road portion, which means room for bikes and bus lanes, as well as the sidewalk portion, which now can be the parklets, can be the waste management uh, and things of that nature. So anyhow, all right, let's let's move on. Let's get to the next uh, section in your report here. Quoting, as these networks and we're talking about bus and bike lanes, as these networks mature and grow, new demands have prompted other new uses such as curbside pickups and drop-offs and the explosion in package deliveries. What evidence can you share to make a case for reallocating curb space for these new uses? You know, given New York City has a lot of curbs. Um, they're very valuable, but whenever you were first, whenever the city first decided to put in a bus lane or a bike lane, they could put a bus lane over there and they could put a bike lane over here. But as, as these networks have, out, it turns out that a lot of times the bus lanes are in the same place that you might want to put a loading zone or a you know pickup and drop off zone, and so you have to figure out how to how to manage this increased competition for the, the best pieces of the curve, not just for the curve in general, but their specific specific contests. I, I think that the reason that people have become so started to pay so much attention to pickups and drop offs and, and you know, e commerce is really because of the, the increase in demand. And so I guess when, when I think about you know, what is the, the evidence I can make for reallocating, I think a, a big piece of it is just that this is a use that a lot of people and an increasing number of people are starting or increasing their usage of. And given the current allocation of the curb, which is predominantly free parking, very little of it is dedicated to these other uses, which means that your, your UPS truck is parking in the travel lane, uh, causing cars to swerve around. Your food delivery driver is doing the same thing, you know, maybe parking in a bike lane uh, because there isn't anything open on the curb for them to, to park. Those add up. 
to real impacts on the number of miles traveled, which leads to can lead to pollution and emissions and congestion. The, the current allocation is is there because that's what it's been since in New York City's case since the fifties. Um, let me ask you this, Daniel. Let me ask you yep. this. Tell me, in in twenty twenty, in June of twenty twenty, obviously we have a lot of issues going on, like real issues, yes. right? You're mentioning things like there's the environmental consideration, the sustainable consideration of all the things that are going on. What do you find to be so pressing now on why the curb would be so important? With all of the things that are going on, I, I do think the, you know, the, the pandemic has certainly increased um, at least the perception and, and probably the reality um, of, of demand for e-commerce and, and pickups and drop-offs of, of goods. And that is a use that can work quite well as a, as a curb space allocation if you give enough space to it. Because you can, you know, with just 20 or 40 feet of the curb, you can allow over the course of a day 10, 20, 30 deliveries versus cars that are parked in a free parking space, even in somewhere like New York City, are not moving that much. Instead, you could use that space to facilitate, uh, you know, 30 deliveries over the course of a day, or which are, are which are trips that then people don't have to make to a store where they're worried about, uh, you know, COVID. What I try to explore in the report is pick up and drop up zones. I sort of I examine them like as an abstract thing of what does this get you on its own? What does getting one pick up and drop up zone do in terms of health, safety, environment? But then you can also look at, well, what are the impacts of what we have today, which is mostly free parking. And so what would the result be if you replaced the free parking with a pick up and drop off zone? And so it's it's not just about some abstract benefit. It's also about what would this look like in reality? And practically speaking, then you're saying 20 to 40 feet of curb space allocation to pick up and drop off. If you were to allocate that much space to solely pick up and drop off, then the the usage of that curb will be exponentially better for the residents, for uh, for businesses, for the environment, for sustainability. Yeah, that's that's basically the just what I what I tried to to show in with the, with the data. And, and something that's important with that is that you don't need a whole block um, for that use. You just need some portion of the block. Uh, and so you can you can think about this as Maybe you have like a menu of curb uses, and it's not just, you know, eliminate all free parking. You don't have to eliminate all cars. You can think about replacing a couple of existing parking spaces with a loading zone or with a with a pickup and drop off zone, and that gets you a significant benefit. Okay, let's let's go to the report here. Quoting from the report: Free parking and bike lanes have the lowest overall costs of implementation. The two public amenities, parklets and waste collection, have significantly higher costs than the other use cases considered. Parklets require substantial upfront investments, approximately $10,000 or more. In your appendix, which again, your report, Daniel, it's the reason why I called you a thought leader before is because in addition to all the publications you've written, just your last report here on the curb space, several, several, several 
data points. So it looks like you've come up with the value estimates of a parklet, where in San Francisco, an estimate for a parklet is $12,000. In Seattle, it's $27,000. In New York City, it's $15,000. Parklets are something that I think are pretty awesome. For those that don't know what a parklet is, I mean, just imagine you're extending out the services of a restaurant to the curb and you kind of build out, uh, you you have like a wooden pallet that you can build out as, as, a, as a platform and then you can resurrect some tables and chairs and you're not looking to house 100 people, but if you can house maybe another 10, 12 more customers, that's the idea of, of a parklet here. So one of the things that I'm looking at here, Daniel, is the value of a parklet, it seems to be pretty inflated to me. What, what how, how did you come up with these estimates for the parklets in these particular cities? Yeah, so these are, um, you know, these are benchmarks. Of, I looked at, at reports that these different places have put out. In, in New York City's case, 15,000 is, um, is what I think the public sector will, will essentially cover um, that, that amount of the parklets construction. Um, Seattle, uh, I think, was the most uh, of the of the ones you just listed. Seattle put out a pretty uh, helpful report where they, they explain the costs, and so most of that is uh, materials and construction. Design is another aspect that you know sometimes um, the people getting the parklets can uh, get that donated by you know an architecture firm or something. But if if not, that's you know a few thousand typically. Um, you know, there are different, you know, parklets can be, I think, I, I've, I saw press reports of parklets done for 10,000 or less and some that are 100,000 or more. So they, they really do range quite quite substantially. But the, the biggest component is materials and construction. I think the idea of a parklet to me is pretty valuable, especially, again, if it can be used for restaurants, if it can be used for the local retailers, if it could be used for just simple, I don't know, for is smoking still allowed in New York City? I honestly do not know. You're not obviously you're not a smoker either. Yeah, I'm not a smoker either. I mean, but just for gatherings like I think parklets are one of those things I would like to see more of. It's a place outdoors. I mean, come on, with the pandemic going on, where's the safest place to be? Outdoors. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good. I I came away. I guess I went into this as a, as a fan of parklets, but I came away really quite impressed with them as a as a use, especially because just like the loading zones, you know, this is something you don't need a whole block to do. You can do a very nice parklet that can add value to a business, you know, a restaurant, a shop. And also add value to the local community with just 20 feet of curb space. Exactly. Um, and it's something where this often is a is a an example of, of public and private collaboration. You might have, you know, some public funding support and some private funding support. Oftentimes, a local business will be responsible for maintaining uh, and you know keeping up the parklet and, and those sorts of things. And so it's a I think it's a nice opportunity, especially. Uh, in, where local governments are more resource constrained um, to find ways to, to be creative and to you know, get as much value out of this asset as we can. Listeners, I've read the report a couple times and have simmered on it for probably the last couple of weeks. So I think one of the takeaways that I am understanding from the report, all the information you presented, and again, I think this goes back to the first thing you were talking about, Daniel, the reason why you decided to do this report, it wasn't to 
affirm the idea that curb space is primarily dedicated to free parking. We all know that, but was to look at some quantitative data and be able to make sense out of it and propose some recommendations. So I think one of the things then that I've concluded myself is that the curb is dynamic. If we operate from the principle that the curb is dynamic from its uses, then that is the model by which we should look to implement any sort of policy, right? If you think of uh, toll lanes, for instance, one of the great things of toll lanes or toll roads is that there's there's a very, very high percentage that you will not find yourself in traffic. One of the reasons for it is that eventually the price of that toll goes extremely high and it then pushes people out of that toll lane and it helps manage congestion. So a congestion pricing model on the curb makes sense as long as it supports the idea if we accept the fact that the curb is in its essence dynamic it doesn't sound like in 1954 and even as we've graduated from 1954 till maybe at least 2010 that we've accepted the that the curb is dynamic yeah i i think that that's it's a good observation and it's it's i i think that what you raised though with the the overall dynamic nature of the curb is something that public officials like and, and the private sector are, are now trying to figure out, given that we generally think that this is true, or that we think that there's, you know, maybe we could be flexible about the curb, how do we actually put that into practice? Because there's one thing to you know, say, I would like this to be five different uses over the course of the day in two hour blocks, but it's another to actually find a way that you can do that, in a, you know, that, that users can understand it, that the you know violations can be enforced you know that's that's quite tricky and, and so there are you know some some companies that are starting to develop uh you know proposals and and you know potential solutions but actually operationalizing that that flexibility um is is pretty tricky if we can find ways to you know to be a little bit more flexible and more creative while still allowing users to make sense of it and, and you know uh, staff that are enforcing it to, to actually be able to do that um like that seems like the, the optimal solution but uh, you know we need to find the right technology platform or, or you know set of set of policies and so in the interim i think there's you know some good good solutions that, that can help get to that one that i talk about quite a bit in the report is what's called neighborhood loading zones which is um, a program in new york city that's it's a pickup and drop off zone that explicitly allows for both passenger and goods pick up and drop off. And why I like that so much is that it, it, it acknowledges the reality that the demands for those are different by different times of day, but they complement each other pretty well. You might have lots of uh, passenger demand in the morning and in the evening, and there's a lot of delivery demand in the midday. And so if you set aside some space that's explicitly usable for both, um, then you can get that that dynamism, that dynamism and that flexibility without having to overcomplicate the enforcement and, and and usage. The neighborhood loading zone. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so that's it's a pilot program uh, in New York City right now, uh, which is not you know a, it, it takes concepts that have been deployed in other cities, but the the unique part of it is that you know this is one that you know you could have an Uber or Lyft you know, go and, and pick up a passenger and then a FedEx truck can go in. Uh, but it's, 
it's in more residential zones. Uh, so it's in you know, denser residential zones. Several of the neighborhoods I looked at were neighborhood loading zones, pilot areas. And you know, they, it's a daytime program. And so overnight parking is still allowed. This is another way that they're trying to combine different uses. And so you have from eight to seven or you know, nine to six, the, the hours vary a little bit. That space doesn't allow parking. And it'll, but so instead, people can use it for active loading and unloading of people and goods. Um, and I actually went and just uh, stood on a street corner and observed some of these uh, as, as part of the, the process for this report. And they really do get pretty high usage. You, you, weren't, you weren't looking like a creep at all. It was purely for academic research. I, I am, uh, <laughs> yes, I, I'm certain that I had some people thinking that I was a little bit uh, off. You know, lost a few marbles. Um, <laughs> I did have to duck under an awning when it started hailing once. Uh, that was uh, oh my word. <laughs> so real, but it was uh, in general the, the takeaway from that. Um, and I, I looked. I went to zones in three different neighborhoods. Uh, was really that these were quite quite well used, um, and certainly, you know, significantly more used uh, on a number of uses basis. Uh, than you know the free parking spots that they were immediately adjacent to. Now, why is that? Well, why is that something not not around as much? I I, f I feel like that's a very easy win for both the public and the private sector to get behind. Frankly, I think it's because these spaces um, were deployed in place of existing free parking, and and so I think it, it becomes it's the. Uh, you know the status quo is is strong, uh, and in general there is reticence to touch the, the third rail of parking. But I do think that the success of this program, and and there have been other other cities are experimenting with variations of this for a while. It just no one did it, and so there wasn't evidence that it could work. Um, but now that some cities are starting, I think that it could uh, build some momentum because I do think it's popular with the residents that that can then take advantage of them. I think it's also, uh, as you mentioned, probably popular with local businesses, um, particularly if uh, it's something that can facilitate additional trips to you know, local stores or um, additional deliveries to and from local stores. And in your report, you have also estimated what these annualized costs of installing and operating 20 feet of curb space for uh, neighborhood loading zones and parklets. And for instance, for neighborhood loading zones, you have the annualized installation cost to run at a big whopping total of $47. The operating costs on it would be 858 for a total of $905 annually. I mean, that was, I, to me, listeners, that is very, very low for what you can get in return. Now, of course, as Daniel's mentioning, you got to fight the old school thought, the the stubborn thought, the obstinate folks that don't want to lose the free parking. But I would argue that as we move forward in this new future where we are going to be more conscious of pandemics, it's going to allow us to work more from home. Who knows when these protests at the moment may end and who knows when if it will come back which i'm probably certain it will come back as they always come back you know daniel you wrote this report pre-pandemic pre-george uh, floyd protests and riots 
is there anything that has either affirmed your research or anything that now you maybe want to kind of walk back a little? I don't know that there's much I'd, I'd want to walk back. I do on the, I, I think it's been mostly peaceful protest um, rather than riots. Um, I, I think that something I, I talk about some in the report that I would, I think, you know, could be worth exploring more given the, you know, the, the focus on, on racial and economic justice is really about the distribution of, of the benefits from these different uses. And so something I, I discuss is, in general, I, I don't know if this is a categorical statement, but in New York City, uh, you know, households that own cars tend to be wealthier and tend to be whiter than the city as a whole. Uh, the majority of, of New York City doesn't own cars. Uh, and so it creates a, an imbalance because you have this, this really valuable asset that is being allocated to a use that a lot of the city can can really take advantage of and they, they do get real value out of. It's you know, tremendous savings for, for the people that get free parking versus having to pay for a private garage. Um, but those those people that are getting that benefit tend to be whiter, tend to be wealthier. I think it's really important for, for public officials and, and you know, transportation um, practitioners to be, to be careful about thinking about what are the, who's benefiting from what we're doing and who's not, um, and who's actually being harmed. Because a lot of the, the cons of, of free parking, of you know, additional, additional car trips that lead to additional traffic deaths and additional pollution and additional emissions, a lot of those costs are disproportionately borne um, by uh, you know, minority groups, in part because we've, we've set up our transportation systems in ways that, that are themselves you know, at times discriminatory. And so I, I do think that a greater focus on that um, could be, if I, were, if I were writing the report now, I think I would spend more time there um, because I, I think it's a really important problem and, and one that we really do have to think about how to confront. On the on the pandemic side, I, I think that more focus on on parklets and um, pick up and drop off zones is probably you know, of the those are the ones that obviously we've been discussing today. I think mm -hmm. those are the ones that they'll they'll see I think more expansion given all of this than I would have expected otherwise, and so I might have focused more of my recommendations specifically on, on how to facilitate that. Given what you were saying then about how most of the of the Upper West Side and the parking that's used that one of the statistics that you have come across is that most of the people that are that are parking are tend to be a little bit more affluent tend to be more white. How do you see systemic racism in the transportation system? So I think there's that could be a whole podcast episode in itself. I um, I think that this is a topic that obviously systemic racism, I will contend, that is very broad, broadly described, that unless we start to dive into the details, that we're never really going to get to the problem of systemic racism. And the reality is, is that you and I are not trained attorneys. We're not trained bankers. We don't know systemic racism in the banking industry, but we both have a background in the automotive and the mobility space and the transportation space. So maybe you and I can shed some lights on systemic racism in the transportation sector. So I think it's, it's important to think about that, the history of, of our transportation systems. Um, you know, it's just one example. I mean, the, I think the, the most obvious example 
is the way in which our, our interstate highways or our urban freeways were constructed. And oftentimes they were constructed through and, and involved tearing down neighborhoods that were the path of least resistance, um, which was poorer, you know, more, more minority neighborhoods. And that not only, you know, disrupts those communities and, and um, in, the, in that time, but it also then means that emissions from traffic are predominantly in places that are tend to be lower income or minority, um, which has its own health effects. And so a lot of the decisions, this isn't, there's problems today, but we have to think about, you know, what are the decisions that we made 50 years ago um, that are still having impacts in, in racially disparate ways? I think, you know, in, in looking at curbs specifically or, or this section of the, the road, you know, I, I, I mentioned uh, you know, the, the disparities in, in, in parking or in car ownership, uh, you know, specifically it's, um, I think the numbers that I, that I ran and, and finally came up with were that the, the average income of someone who parks their car on the street in New York City is 60% higher than the average income of um, someone or I guess some of a household that, that does not have a car that they park on the street. It's not an accident. It's, it's a result of, of policies that have made um, our, our economy and our society uh, made it harder for, for some groups to get ahead than others. And so I think whenever we think about how we're allocating the curb, that, that's important to think about. You know, I, you know, there's, we could talk about transit or you know, the, the lack of investment in transit in a lot of places and um, the, the prioritizing of modes of transit that like commuter rail that, that might skew uh, toward wealthier commuters. Um, and so I think just in, in lots of different sections of the transportation system, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of, of things to think about, and it's important to, to keep these, these racial uh, and economic disparities in mind before we make the next round of big public investments, because these, these effects last a long time. We're still dealing with them from, uh, you know, decisions made in the 50s or even before. before. So it's, I think it's, it's really important to keep it, keep it in mind going forward. Listeners, that was Daniel Como. He's a recent graduate with a master's in public policy from Harvard Kennedy University. And a congratulations to him as he will be starting his first official job with the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. Daniel, we'll look forward to following you. Listeners, thanks for tuning in, as always. Cheers. Prost. Lachaim. Kipis. Nastravi. Salud. Kampai. Mabruk. Tutsins. Gambe. Yamas. Nastrovie. Vo. And salute to the customer experience. Hey, listeners, co-host Kelly Cruz here. Thank you for joining us on another episode. Always very appreciative to have you along for our journey. If you are enjoying being along with us, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Facebook. Not sure what the top rating is, but if you are having a great time, give us that top rating. If you're not having a great time, then let us know why and how we can improve. So we look forward to uh, continuing to make things even better. We look forward to being with you soon.